Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello, and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm David Temple. Today, I'm honored to have New York Times bestselling author and Pulitzer Prize nominee Caitlin Rother on the show. As you will quickly learn, Caitlin is a true crime aficionado. And with 19 years of investigative journalism and 14 books under her belt, along with two in the works, Caitlin is a force to be reckoned with. Listen as Caitlin shares an investigation so complex and so bizarre, you'll leave the show wanting to read her latest book, Death on Ocean Boulevard. But right now, it's time to get in the Thriller Zone. I think I have to say, Caitlin, this is the first time I've ever ever had a uh, Pulitzer Prize nominee on the show, so I feel really humbled and honored. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thank I, you. I'll, I will assume this position for a better part of the show. <laughs> you should get up. <laughs> Man, you are a true crime aficionado, and having not spent a great deal of time reading true crime, I want to start out of the gate with, uh, besides a great big hello, is uh, two words. Holy crap, this was a great great book. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Death on Ocean Boulevard. We're going to get to this. I want to go in depth. It is a remarkable, remarkable book. And thank you. It's so fun to read. Um, I, I, you know, this is the child in me. I went right to the photographs first. <laughs> a lot of people do that. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, they got pretty pictures. No, but it's a, it's a great book. And uh, I want to chat about all your credentials and all that. But I, I wanted to start here because I've never hung out with an investigative reporter. So I wanted to say, you know, having worked for newspapers for 19 years, what was that kind of background like for you? And, and it's a it's a bit of a dying breed in some ways uh, for sadly. today. Which, yeah. Sadly, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. I mean, well, it was a great foundation for writing books. So, I mean, I quit my newspaper job to write books full time once I got my second book contract. But um, I had to plan it all out very carefully, like lining up planes on a runway to make sure that I had money coming in because, you know, when you're just starting out, you know, you have high hopes and dreams of making this big blockbuster book that'll go to movies. And okay, so I'm on, I'm on just finishing, uh, 14 now, that's number 14 that you've got there. And I'm working on 15 and 16 right now. And, you know, you always hope that the book's going to be a big breakthrough. And this one actually had the most anticipation and the most excitement from all the readers. But because of COVID, we had the the slow delay in the in the rollout. But anyway, to answer your question, I, I wouldn't be where I am without having that newspaper background. I mean, I had to learn my craft and that, you know, I'm also a writing coach. I've taught writing for 10 years also at UCSD Extension and San Diego Writers Inc. And basically what I tell uh, my students and my clients is if you don't learn your craft, you know, you don't learn this overnight. People mm-hmm. want an easy answer. They want an easy fix. You have to know what you're doing and it's not just writing. It's also the research. So, I mean, I've been writing my whole life, but I, my newspaper background taught me how to research. And so I was, you don't start out as an investigative reporter. In fact, if you use that term, your editors will slap you down because you don't really know what you're doing yet. So not every reporter is an investigative reporter. Um, Hopefully they learn how to be, but it's a skill and it's an acquired skill. And you have to have a certain makeup to your personality um, and a certain intelligence and a certain, you know, analytical thinking. And you need to be able to know where to go to find the information. And that's a, that's something you have to learn. You don't just know those things. So yeah, 19 years as a newspaper reporter, I left as an investigative reporter. um, And that's helped me immensely. And honestly, as an author though, um, I don't have access to some of the same things that I have had as a journalist. I don't have a press pass anymore. They don't let me into news conferences. So even though I'm going to be writing way more in depth than anyone else in that room, they won't let me in. And and speaking of some of the biggest, I mean, 
not only in investigative reporting, not only experience, but I mean, only the biggest papers in the country, LA Times, Chicago Trib, uh, Washington Post, Boston Globe. I mean, these, these were not uh, little mom and pop papers. So I would imagine cutting your teeth in that kind of uh, heady competitive environment, put, not only did it put you in a league with few others, but it forced you to sharpen your skills probably faster and more sharply than anywhere else, wouldn't it? Well, I have a scene that comes to mind when you mention that. Um, I was the nighttime reporter at the Los Angeles Daily News when Michael Jackson's molestation charges, the news of that broke. And there was only one reporter in the room at night at the Daily News, and that was me. <laughs> wow. So I drove down to Parker Center, and they uh, had the news conference in this giant auditorium, and it was packed with people and cameras. But then the next day, there was a news conference in one of the lawyer's offices, and it was literally wall to wall cameras and tripods. I mistakenly wore a white dress. I had to sit on the floor. There was some guy with his tripod in, in leg in my purse. You know, they don't care. They're pushing, they're shoving, you know, especially the men. Um, anyway, so yeah, I definitely cut my teeth on some of these crime cases, even as a reporter at a newspaper. So I wasn't a crime reporter at the newspaper. I actually covered mostly um, government and, and politics for a lot of my career. But yeah, I definitely like to do the crime stuff on the weekends. When I was on a rotating shift, I'd always ask for the cop beat because that's, you get a murder on a Saturday and, you know, it's not like I was waiting for murders to happen, but that's, I really did cut my teeth at yeah. the newspaper covering this stuff. Yeah. It's so funny. It's like, you're reading my notes ahead of my, ahead of me. And <laughs> When I thought about Washington Post, and I, I hope this isn't a, a trite uh, reference for you, but one of my favorite movies of all time, I, I really literally have lost count the number of times I've seen it, but All the President's Men. Uh-huh, definitely. Love, love that. In my opinion, probably Redford's best performance. But I'd love to know how close to the world that we saw there, uh, because they spent so much time and attention to detail to crafting that world, how close to that world is the world you lived in? Well, that was a huge national story. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something different. I mean, you'd have to, you know, I worked for, and I did work for the LA Times, but I was a full-time freelancer. So I never got a giant story like that at the LA Times. But at the LA Daily News, that Michael Jackson story was was pretty big. And, you know, it's not the Pentagon Papers, it's Michael Jackson, but you know, in terms of big stories in mm -hmm. LA, that was a huge story. And it was a huge story actually internationally because that was the very beginning. Remember that he, he, nobody really thought anything badly about him before that. So, um, you know, the whole thing with the deep throat, I, I've definitely had my um, off the record sources, but it's tricky. That's a really tricky situation to be in sure. because, um, you know, and the Washington Post is a different type of paper than papers that I've worked at because, for example, the San Diego Union Trim, that, that Tribune, they didn't want you to use off the record sources or anonymous sources. They really, really tried to push for people to give their names because, you know, when you're covering local government, there's a lot of this stuff where people want to just say stuff about their opponent or about somebody who they're want they want to be in office and they don't want to use their name because it's part of the power structure to hide behind the campaign disclosures that don't have their name on it. I mean there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes and so that's the kind of stuff that I covered um I did cover politics and so there was a lot of stuff that I had to do and I was trying to expose that stuff so no, I didn't have giant, you know, national stories, but on a local level, level or on a on a, a regional level, I I did have some big stories, and and I also covered some things that I thought were very important to me personally and to the readers. And the thing about working for a newspaper, I went into it with an ideological viewpoint. I think a lot of reporters do. You want to change the world. You want to expose wrongdoing. You want to show the voters and the readers, you know, what your elected officials are doing wrong, because you want them to vote for people who do something right. 
And it's so idealistic, but look where we are, you know? Yeah. I mean, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> you know? So I wish it were more like that, but when you, you know, the Washington Post, I've, I haven't worked at the Washington Post. Um, I haven't worked at the New York Times. I had an interview there, uh, which was great, just getting in the door. Yeah. But I think they probably run things a little differently, but even they have scandals and, feet, you know, pushback. So there's a lot of politics actually in the newsroom. And, and there's a lot of editors that don't want certain things in the paper because they're scared. You know, yeah. they, it's, it's very political actually covering politics. <laughs> and sometimes the politics are more in your own newsroom and your own organization than they are in the community. So you have to fight that too. So it, it's, it's, that's a hard question to answer because that's, that's a different type of paper. It's a different level from the kind of paper I was working at. Do you think in our lifetime that they're going to ever fully disappear? I often wonder that. I sure hope not. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I, I mean, I I get my newspapers on my phone. I never, ever, ever wanted to read anything on my phone before. But, you know, I can't afford the prices and I don't want all that paper stacking up in my house. And I used to laugh at when people said that to me. Well, yeah. I don't have enough time. You know, I spend hours, literally hours reading the news every day, which is more than I did before, but there's so much going on right now. And I really feel like I need to know what's going on and how to protect my life from COVID and what the stats are and what, what risks do I want to take? So I literally read more news today than I ever have. And I think a lot of people are reading a lot more news. And I think uh, Trump created a lot of that fear we needed to know you know we need it was like watching a traffic accident every day in a train wreck or a plane wreck or a titanic or what's it going to be next you know yeah. so we you know but i also see a lot of people saying i need to stop watching the news because it's making me physically sick we have to have news if we don't have news we don't know what's going on and these politicians need to be kept honest well, and this leads me to my next question. Uh, having been a reporter, uh, I've seen some of your work as a journalist on television, uh, 2020 Crime Watch Daily, Nancy Grace. What is your opinion, and I know this is a loaded question, of news <laughs> channels today? Uh, that's part one. And part two, did you ever in your career want to be an anchor? So let's go with the first part. You know, what's your opinion? Loaded okay, question. That, that's, yeah, that's like a bunch of questions. Okay, okay. let's do one, one at a time. What's your opinion? of basically news channels today. And I, I got a pretty good idea just real quickly from your comments there, uh, a little bit of what you feel, but. Well, let's just say that there are certain channels that purposely put out misinformation and disinformation. And I think that's extremely dangerous. And some of them are getting sued, thankfully, because I think that's just terrible. It's terrible for society. It's terrible for the community. It's terrible for, you know, people believe things that are just so wrong. And, and now it's dangerous to your health to think that and dangerous to my health for, for news channels to be putting out that kind of misinformation. It's, it's just so reckless and irresponsible. It makes me insanely upset. So I'm not, well, they're not doing it for ratings, are they? Oh no, of course not. <laughs> so, but what I don't understand, frankly, is how they get away with that. But I was just reading something this morning. It was a little confusing about the Supreme Court. They're starting to look at the First Amendment and some of the precedents um, that they're going to start looking at that. So I don't know, but I don't see how, you know, I don't see how people cannot distinguish between opinion, commentary, and news that is based on fact, but they don't. They do not understand that. And it's not something subtle to me. But I'm a you know journalist, and I know what the difference is. But I've lost friendships because we have to argue about what is commentary and what is fact, and they think that certain channels are factual, and they're not. They're based on people's opinions, and that's how they're getting away with doing it in court. Is that oh nobody rational would ever believe this? Well, then why is it on your channel as news? If I mean you can't have it both ways. So I I really hope that that shakes out in the courts. I I hope I hope it does. I, I don't know because it's very dangerous what's going yeah. on. It's funny. Every morning, uh, my wife will often get up a little bit earlier than me and start reading the news, and I'll and I'll 
the running joke is, is I'm getting coffee. So what's new today? What's, what's the new happening today? And she goes, Oh no, same old blank, uh, just a different day. And I, and I find it's so interesting that it does feel like a cookie cutter. It's like, if this topic didn't get enough attention yesterday, let's try to make, give it more attention today. And if it didn't have a certain slant yesterday, why don't we try to slant it this way today to see if we can get a little more traffic? And it's it's it seems it feels like a bizarre time. Well, yes, it definitely is. From a from a news standpoint, from a purely news standpoint, um, there is something called chipping away at a story. And rather than trying to do everything in one day, you do, you know. It is a traditional approach to take sure. a little piece at a time and to build on that. And, and as stories develop, that should be an organic thing. So if, if, if there are certain channels that are people are strategizing about messages that they want to put out, I think that's actually happening. And that's not, not really supposed to be happening. That's not news. That is propaganda that is being strategically formulated and manipulated in certain rooms and messages are being distributed and we know that's happening and i think that's extremely dangerous and the problem is that there are a lot of people in this country they just don't understand that that's what's going on it's not factual information it is it's people who want power and are trying to manipulate people's opinions and they're succeeding Kaylin, i wish you had an opinion on this just a little bit i know, you know just a you know, I was never allowed to have an opinion when I was a reporter at the Union Tribune or anywhere else. You're supposed to be objective. And I, I mean, and I do that in my books, too. In fact, for this, this book that we are going to talk about, Death on Ocean Boulevard, I specifically did not take a position with even though a lot of people trying to push me to take one. Um, I took a journalistic and objective view. So, you know, I'm a little more free talking about things these days, but that changed only about a year and a half ago, I actually didn't used to do this, but I just, I feel like it's so important now that, that somebody who actually knows what they're talking about takes a stand on this. And because um, a lot of journalists have, have actually said this to me as well, we were all kind of holding back because that's how, what we were taught to do, sure. but the world has changed and, you know, the stakes are so much higher now. I, I, I have actually been encouraged by, by my Facebook friends, my fans, my readers, whatever people who I know on there, when I've said, you know, should I do this? They're like, please don't stop. You're actually keeping me sane. And I read your posts because I really respect and admire what you have to say. Um, please keep doing it. You notice I'm not naming names or certain people or certain channels. And so right. <clears throat> I wish, I wish I could have this bubble that was over your head. That would be, uh, yeah, <laughs> this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm saying. Well, I think you can. <clears throat> read some of it anyway. Uh, I am reading a little bit between the lines. We're going to jump onto Ocean Boulevard in a second, but I do want to get the other okay. part of that question answered. Oh, the TV? Did I ever want to be a TV? Yeah, so yeah, an so anchor, this yeah. is an interesting whole um, story arc. Okay, so when I was in graduate school uh, at Medill, there was a Washington program that I went to, which I was really excited about, Washington, D.C. Because um, I've always been, I've always kind of been interested in, in that sort of thing. And I thought, wow, Washington, D.C., that's so cool. So I started out covering consumer reporting because I actually had a little background in that. That's how I started. I started at a radio station working for a consumer reporter as an internship when I was at UC Berkeley. So I thought I would do that. Next thing you know, I'm getting thrown into um, some other beat that's much more um, government oriented because someone got sick and I got shoved into that situation. I was like, okay. Um, but the thing that's interesting was there was a TV program and a print program, and I was in the print program, and I always thought it was kind of amusing that I kept overhearing the broadcast people talking about their hair all the time. <laughs> and I thought, thank God I don't have to worry about that, because it just seems like, don't you have more important things to think about? And you know what? Today, I'm on TV quite a bit. That's all I think about, too. <laughs> it's so <laughs> crazy, but you know what? It's true. If your hair is going like this while you're talking, no one's going to hear anything you say. Right. Right? Yeah. So it's funny how that's all changed. So, and then fast forward, I get to my first print job, my newspaper job, and I'm basically um, losing my, my I, I didn't get hired past my probation period because it wasn't a good fit. 
And I still remember after they gave me my notice and said, well, you can stay until we hire someone. I was gone like in a day, I had another job already. Um, and they were like, you're leaving? We don't have anyone to fill your position. Oh, well, you should have thought of that before. But they said, you know, you have the looks to go into TV. Why don't you do that? And they, they thought they were, you know, throwing me a bone, but, but it was an insult because at the time, people in print really just didn't respect people in TV. You know, you're at a little elitist newspaper like I was, right. Berkshire Eagle, which is pretty much how I saw it. Um, I was thankful to be hired there, but, you know, they had very high thoughts of themselves. Um, but they were kind of like insulting me by saying that. But as it turns out, this is where I am now. And I do a lot of TV. I, I've been on TV, um, you know, and radio podcasts, all this stuff. I can't even count anymore. I'm probably like 250 times. Wow. And wow. I've learned and I really actually really enjoy it. Um, it's taken a lot of practice. Um, I used to be extremely shy and I'd get very nervous and Oh yeah, you'd never know it now, but I did. I did. <laughs> so I mean, I've learned, and and I find that I have actually a lot more in common now with the TV uh, producers and reporters that um, work in my community than I do sometimes with the print people because it's actually hard to do a good job on TV and boil everything down to a small number of short, small number of words and really have it have a dynamic delivery and I mean there's a lot to think about but it's very important because a lot of people watch tv that's where a lot of people get their news uh first of all like I said holy crap I I picked this thing up you sent it to me I don't know a week and a half ago and I was done in about two days which is really unusual for me when I have this volume to read but this was so uh engaging and so oh I'm trying to keep my language clean so <laughs> freaking bizarre but yes. uh, let's just start here. It began on July 13th, 2011, when a call to the historic Spreckles Mansion on Ocean Boulevard uh, rang San Diego authorities. All right, that right there got your attention, but it was perhaps, in my opinion, uh, yours too, I'm sure, equally significant was the second call just two days earlier. Now, in order to so that I don't screw it up and give away too much because I want people to pick this book up and read it as do you. But can you give us like a, a little synopsis that gives us the gist of the story without giving away too much? Sure. I've Perfect. done it many times in the last few months. So, sure. um, <laughs> okay. So there are two deaths here in the end um, that are important and they didn't happen in chronological order. So the first incident was six-year-old Max Shacknai, who was the son of Rebecca's boyfriend, Jonah Shacknai, who was the owner of the historic Speckles Mansion in Coronado, California. So it's actually a separate city from San Diego, but it's in San Diego County. So it's an island, essentially, not exactly an island because there's a little strip that connects it to the mainland, but it is essentially an island surrounded by water on all sides. Right. So um, Rebecca's a how is 32 years old and she is taking care of Max. Uh, she's basically quit her job as a ophthalmic technician about six months earlier so that she can take care of Max and Jonah. And then Jonah also has two teenage kids uh, from two, two marriages ago. And Max is from the second marriage, he's divorced. He's been with Rebecca for about a couple of years. So Rebecca's sister, flew in to visit for about a month and she's 13. And so she's in the house, Max is in the house, Jonah is at the gym and Rebecca is downstairs using the bathroom when she hears a crash and the dog is barking. She comes out, she finds little Max lying on the floor surrounded by pieces of broken glass, uh, a glass chandelier that had been hanging on the second story uh, ceiling, which so it's a big open alcove. Um, there's a razor scooter and a soccer ball. So she goes over to Max. Max is not breathing. His heart isn't beating. She yells up to her sister, uh, call 911. So the, the sister can't find the phone initially. She's running around looking for it. She gets 911 on the phone and they played this 911 call in the courtroom. It was the first time I'd heard it. 
Uh, it was a very strange call, but Rebecca is basically calling out instructions and directions to the dispatcher because there's a language problem and they're not understanding is it's a girl, is it a boy, is she the mother, is she not anyway. So basically um, in between though, she tells Jonah later that she had been trying to give Max CPR. So the ambulance comes, uh, Jonah runs back from the gym because Rebecca calls him and lets him hear what's going on. And as he gets home, you know, the, the little boy's being loaded into the ambulance. And he turns out that they bring him back with two shots of epinephrine, but he's been down for an estimated 25 to 30 minutes. They think he has a chance though, because Rebecca said she gave him CPR. So anyway, uh, they take him to the hospital. Jonah says to Rebecca, you can't come because Max's mother, Dina Shacknai, does not get along with Rebecca. Big conflicts, big problems. Jonah doesn't want a scene. So Rebecca's not allowed to be in the room with this little boy who she loved so much and who loved her. And it, that alone, I think, was probably very difficult for her. Sure. So um, next chapter, essentially, it, just to skip ahead, um, Jonah's brother, Adam Shackney, his younger brother, uh, flies out from Memphis to be supportive um, the next day. And Rebecca's little sister, she sends her home because she this was supposed to be a vacation, but the little boy's in the ICU and Rebecca's ferrying relatives and friends back and forth from the airport to the hospital to the, you know, back to where they're staying. Sure. And um, anyway, so Adam comes out and this is the about 24 hours after, day and a half after the little boy has this fall. Turns out what they think happened is that he was on an upstairs a balcony along a railing, somehow went over the railing, grabbed a hold of the chandelier and was swinging on it. It broke and he fell. Okay. So that's like a whole story down. Boom. Mm -hmm. um, he had bruises and cuts on his face. He had bruises on his back connected to a bunch of tubes. It was, it was pretty horrifying to see pictures. So anyway, Adam flies in, they go to dinner um, and then Rebecca brings Jonah back to the hospital. Then she takes Adam back to the mansion. They say goodnight. And Adam goes, this is Adam's story. Um, Adam goes into the guest house, which is a, there's a little grassy courtyard and there's a guest house right there. And Rebecca goes into the main house. The next morning, Adam calls 911 at about 648 in the morning saying, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house. And according to him, he came out that morning and let me back up. He woke up about half an hour earlier, was feeling kind of fitful and restless and pleasured himself to some porno on his phone, took a shower, came outside and saw this thing hanging, didn't realize, thought it was a mannequin initially, realized it was Rebecca. She was naked, bound and gagged. So her hands were tied behind her back, her ankles were bound together. There was a rope around her neck and she also had a t-shirt wrapped around her neck and around her mouth like a gag. Now you can hear also, they also played this tape in the courtroom, another 911 call. You can hear Adam pull a table over and you can hear it bouncing on the, on the uh, pathway, the brick pathway as one of the table legs falls off and bounces and he's grunting and he's cussing. And according to him, he basically stood up on the table had a knife in his hand that he had run and gotten from the kitchen. This is all during the 911 call, so you can hear it. Sure. And he says he grabbed her and cut her down and then, you know, stepped up on the table to cut her down, took her off and down on, laid her down on the courtyard so that when the Coronado police uh, responded, she was already on the grass and her knees were bent in a kind of almost a 90 degree angle. Her hands were still behind her back and he had been on the phone doing supposedly doing compressions with the dispatcher and she says count out loud if you want and he starts at 27 27 28 29 which is also kind of strange um and if you look at the pictures she's not flat you know you can't it's it wasn't a really good position to be giving people giving someone compressions but my point is the when the police came she was already on the grass he's the only one if she was really hanging there, that saw that. 
All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to get to the end of this story, the bottom of the story, which is, as you're already hearing, very bizarre, as well as another take, a, a, a little piece of a story behind the story that is very intriguing to me, and I think will be with you right after this. New York Times bestselling author and Pulitzer Prize nominee Caitlin Rother has crafted a book so chilling you may have to sleep with the lights on. Death on Ocean Boulevard is a must-read for true crime lovers everywhere. Michael Conley, New York Times bestselling author, says Caitlin Rother is a keen architect of the most important part of storytelling character. And New York Times bestselling author Greg Olson calls Rother the next and rule. Pick up Death on Ocean Boulevard inside the Coronado Mansion case. Wherever books are sold, available now. And we're back and we're with Caitlin Rother and the book is Death on Ocean Boulevard. And as you heard just before the break, that <laughs> it is so riveting and so bizarre. And <clears throat> what I could not get around my head and I read the book all the way through, and I even went back a couple of times, and I kept referencing, okay, wait, wait, wait. How does one gag themselves and make these knots and behind your back and uh, kind of pig tie to your ankles, and then when you've done all that, whether the knots were loose or tight and so you could slide into them and then kind of adjust them, how do you then, with very little markings in the exterior around, get onto the railing and toss yourself over? All good questions. Yeah. According to the Sheriff's Department, they made a video. They had a female deputy uh, basically imitate the knots that they said they saw on her wrists, and they, she tied it in front of her, slipped her wrist out, put it behind her, slipped her wrist back in, and then you can see there is a, a piece of rope that's coming out of Rebecca's hands. It's a slip knot yeah. to tighten it, okay? So in order for one of these, and they were all slip knots. So in or, around her neck and around her, uh, so in order to tighten them to make this work, because you know, you have to, if you don't do a slip knot properly and you try to hang yourself, it doesn't work. So exactly. anyway, I learned a lot about knots and knot tying during this trial. Um, but the defense, I'm sorry, the um, Zahau's expert, when he, was testifying and demonstrating on a mannequin in the courtroom, he said the sheriff's department video did not accurately portray the knots that he saw tied on Rebecca. When he did a demonstration on the mannequin, it was extremely complicated um, because the knots were way more elaborate than what the sheriff's department did. So and this would be coming from a person who is not a knot specialist, meaning Rebecca herself. I mean, she wasn't particularly adept in knots. Yeah, we don't, there was no evidence on her laptop that she ever looked up how to tie herself or how to kill herself, or there, there was nothing in her internet browser that led you to understand if she did this to herself, how did she know how to do this? Now, Adam Shacknai, who has been accused of killing her and a jury, a civil jury, not a criminal jury, though, this is very important. A, a civil jury found him responsible for Rebecca's death um, as a result of the civil trial in, in 2018. Um, he said he didn't even know how to tie those knots. And when he did some research for himself online, he said he thought it was shibari, which is a Japanese self-tying, erotic, artistic slash, you know, sexual kind of practice. So I think that the, the bondage aspect of this case is really key in understanding who did this. And we don't know if Rebecca did have some knowledge about this. We don't know how she knew it or where she got it. Um, if it was someone who killed her, we don't know why they killed her that way in particular, but I think that is very key. I think if we were to be able to figure out the bondage aspect, I, I think there are people in this, in this case who know about bondage, who are not coming clean about it. I mean, if she did it to herself and they want to say that she committed suicide, there are certain people in this case who want to, to, to believe she committed suicide. They need to help us understand how she knew how to do this then. Well, there's so many things that 
bounce into my head. Number one is, uh, from what I had read, she was super happy-go-lucky, very pleased with life, very loving, very giving. And having studied for a book that I wrote uh, that was heavy in the psychology, people who are considering suicide um, give off a lot of different clues. They talk about it. They whine about it. They uh, fixate upon it. And there was nothing in her history that said that. Then I hear the other side of the story is like, oh, she felt so guilty because the young boy uh, was injured at, at her hand. Then she wanted to rid herself of the guilt. Then it the wasn't other, really at her hand, though. She was the only adult in the house. That That's right i don't say the only person who really ever said that he she, she not at her hand i meant was, at, on her watch that would okay, be yes. better yeah yeah that that's more accurate okay. okay so you so then you got that then i think about the uh the the bed the bed being did the bed slide that it was attached to as she jumped was that there's a whole that, there's a whole debate about that too yeah by that at all. Uh, the amount of weight you'd have to put on the bed for it to not slide, according to the size of the bed, according to the report, it would be pretty hard for that amount of weight with gravitational pull at that distance not to move that bed. Um, not, to move it, not to move it more than it was moved. More yeah. than it was, right. And, and to then, leave marks on the carpet and et right. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But the thing that this made, I, I literally had to stop and go, did I? just read that at the beginning of the phone call he talks about the fact oh i had to go rub one out i'm like hey it, it wasn't on the phone call it was during one of the interviews with the police but he yes he did volunteer that information to the police that same day okay so it wasn't on a, not, i don't know why i was saying it was on 911 call no it wasn't <laughs> on the 911 call but but even then i mean what would what would something that's pretty private why would you say that well, according to some people, they thought he was trying to make an excuse for why his DNA might be found at the scene. That's what some people think. Yeah, that's that's a stretch. That's a heck of a stretch. But again, I'm not an attorney, nor am I an investigator. But I did play one on television back in the <laughs> 70s. So what it, when you let, let me do this. Let me back okay. up because I want to say the opening preface, I mean, page one, literally, uh, is an attention getter. And it's not the murder scene that I'm talking about, but a, but a confession on your part. And would you share with my audience why this story intrigued you so much? Because it starts there in about four paragraphs. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to show this. Okay. This Secrets, is, lies. This is a very short, but very powerful memoir that took me 19 years to write. <laughs> this is me. And this is my husband. Secrets, lies, and shoelaces. Got it. This, this is our wedding picture. And it was taken at the county administration building where we got married. Um, my husband um, was an alcoholic, which I didn't know when I married him. While we were in marriage counseling, our marriage counselor diagnosed him as having borderline personality disorder, which I certainly didn't know when I married him. And she made it even more difficult for me because she said, and you can't tell him, which I'm sure violated all kinds of weird, you know, laws and ethics, but. Um, you can't tell him that you know. Or that, he, no, she didn't tell him either. She, she didn't tell him because she said he feels so broken already. I don't think it would help him to have another label. He'll just feel more hopeless and more helpless, which I did understand. But I just, I'm just, my only point is, he was diagnosed with that. So um, what was really, uh, I, I didn't know this when the case first broke, but my, um, well, let me just finish that. Mm -hmm. um, he, he went into, um, he had to go into rehab because he got arrested for shoplifting while he was at a professional investment conference. He was the chief investment officer for the San Diego County Investment Fund the retirement fund. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how I met him. I met him when I was reporting. Um, I covered the county retirement board. That's how I met him. So um, anyway, he was very good at his job. Uh, but I could tell that he had secrets. I just didn't know what they were. So I got to know him. Very sweet, generous man. Loved me more than anyone probably ever has or ever will. 
but he was a broken and sick person. And I just didn't realize it until after we were married. And, you know, it was just a very roller coaster marriage. It was very difficult. Um, there were a lot of lies, a lot of secrets. And, you know, he was a he was an alcoholic and he was this pretty advanced alcoholic. I was his third wife. Um, but basically he would make up these stories, but I didn't know that at the time. So, and he would cry and convince me that they were true. And so anyway, uh, the marriage came to an end. He started drinking again after being sober for a year. And I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. We're done. Cause I had told him you drink one more time and we're done. I just can't do this anymore. Cause there was, a, you know, he picked up a gun at one point. I'm sorry, not a gun. He, he had guns in the house and he, I was at work and he threatened to shoot himself over the phone, not directly, but indirectly. Well, while I was in the newsroom and I had two calls on the line going with the 911 operator trying to get, get someone over there. Anyway, it was bad. And then he went into rehab and the program and we lived separately. Finally got, you know, I let him come back and, um, he started drinking, you know, again and picked up a bat. I had to call 911 again. I was actually there that time. So I just had had enough by the time he started drinking again. I said this, you got to go. So he went down to Mexico and he called me and I, you know, I still was concerned about him and, you know, how he was doing because he was a mess. He was, his brain chemistry was all over the place. He had been on a couple different antidepressants and one of them made him much worse. Sometimes that happens, you know, it's just the wrong mix sure, for your sure. brain. And I said, you got to get off that and go get a different one because I was scared of him. And so anyway, uh, he had to go, went down to Mexico. He called me and I said, are you feeling like you want to hurt yourself? Because we had talked about this before and he'd been threatening to commit suicide before. And, and apparently all the way back to his first marriage, I later learned that this was a thing that he did. It was very manipulative, but that's what he did. And he said, not right now. And then within a couple of days, uh, I woke up feeling this really horrible, heavy dread. And I just knew that something had happened to him. And I was talking on the phone. I was in bed. I was just not feeling well. I could just, it was in my body. I was like, uh, and I got a call, um, 10 minutes after I was telling a friend he's either in the hospital in a ditch or he's dead. I just knew it. And I got a call and that pretty much his body was found in a motel room in Mexico, excuse me. And he had hung himself. So Obviously, this case <laughs> was very haunting for me, and it, you know, I really wanted to find out what happened because it was her family was just so absolutely adamant that she did not kill herself. Now, I knew it was coming with my husband. There was no mental illness diagnosis with Rebecca. She, to her family, seemed happy and strong and you know, very athletic and um, you know, but there was another side to her. And so as I got into this story, the, the longer I was reporting on it, the more I learned, I started seeing parallels in, in the behaviors between my husband and her. So I'm not diagnosing her with borderline personality disorder, what have you, but, you know, just a couple things. She was also arrested for shoplifting in Phoenix, just like my husband, they went, it was very weird parallel, but they were both arrested, not at the same time, obviously, sure. um, and went through the same diversion program. And this, that's right before she met Jonah and Jonah didn't know anything about it. Jonah's ex-wife found out about it somehow in the court records, which was very, I couldn't find it. It's not like a public record that's listed. I don't know how she found it, but she did. And then I got it eventually through the investigative reports and stuff, but, um, I read the incident report and it was completely different from what she told Jonah that happened. And I started seeing this pattern. She also was with another boyfriend, Michael Berger, who I interviewed a number of times for the book. And he talked about this kidnapping that she was living with him briefly. Um, she went to work one day and didn't come back. And then she started calling him and saying, they've got me, they've got something over my eyes. They tied me up and you know they're driving me around in a car. And he says, where are you? And she says, I don't know. Like, 
says, it sounds like you're in a bathroom. She says, yeah, so they just let me go to the bathroom. But anyway, she says, I can't, I can't see you anymore. I have to go back to my husband. Now, according to her, she had told Michael Berger that she was going through a divorce. There was no divorce papers filed. She was still married. So, you know, there's this starting to be this pattern of, of behavior that seems similar in terms of telling people completely contradictory stories. Was, you know, obviously some of them are not true. <laughs> and the crying, Michael Berger said he was absolutely convinced that she was scared for her life. And my husband did the same thing. So I just started seeing these, these parallels. And so I put that all in the book. Um, people can make of it what they want, but I don't think she is the very um, happy-go-lucky, untroubled religious person um, that her family thinks she is. And I'm, and I'm not saying they're lying. I think she, that's what she showed them. That's the face she showed them. And so those but parallels had faces. to have hit you at a whole different level because you were, you were sensing and feeling similarly. Well, I mean, I, it took me 19 years <laughs> to write this yeah, because it was very difficult. So I actually did all that processing um, before I had to write this book. But when I was at the trial, yeah, it definitely hit me while I was listening to the psychiatrist testify for the defense about all the risk factors that he saw that made him believe that Rebecca committed suicide. And I oh, was sitting was... there going through the last days of my husband's life and my marriage in my head while I was sitting in the courtroom. And that was obviously difficult. But, you know, I'm very analytical. I've had enough distance from it now. And this writing this other memoir helped a lot. I couldn't finish it until I sat through that trial. So it actually gave me some closure. And, and this book, I think, helped me process my, my what happened to me in my life even more. But it also, more importantly, gave me a whole unique insight that nobody else really has in, in terms of looking at this case. So there's a couple of things that popped into my head and I, I'm curious, and I'm not even sure why I'm asking this one particular word, but anytime during the process, when you were reporting on this, were you scared for your life at any time? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I laugh, but it's not funny. Um, I laugh when I'm nervous sometimes. Um, I, this was like a tennis match for me. And I, I've been told that that's what it's like from people who've read the book as well. Cause I tried to kind of share my process and my mindset as I was gathering information about this case. Um, I could go from it's a suicide to it's a murder and back again. And yeah, so the times that I was thinking to myself there could be a killer out there. I mean, I still think that cause honestly I don't know either way. I, I have, I don't have a position on this because I can't. There's too many weird things that don't make sense both ways. So yeah, yeah, see, that's I, the, that's the second part of my question because I, I, you know, I just have to, it's like, I, I wanna, hey, let's go ahead and have a glass of wine and talk between us girls. And I'm like, all right, tell me what you really think. Cause I'm like- I'm Telling you what I really think. Yeah. I, I don't take a position because I really, I can't. And and frankly, uh -huh. yeah, I do have some leanings on, on one side or the other, but by the same token, I have a lot of um, forensic, questions that can't be answered both both ways so it doesn't it doesn't neither one makes sense there's stuff we don't know it would make more sense if people did not have agendas and narratives that they were trying to protect and we had all the information that's that's the thing all all around it's every every party in this i don't have an agenda i wrote it as an objective journalist but the the characters in these in this story have reputations and images and, you know, money and position and power and everybody's protecting something. How long has this book been out? A couple of months now, right? It came out in uh, April 27th. Okay, several months. And have you, I, I would love to sit and be a fly on the wall reading letters over your shoulder of people talking about it because uh, there has to be a, a consortium of people just sitting there scratching their head, just like you and I are doing going, this can't possibly be true. And, and, or it can't possibly not have been solved yet, but you know, a lot of people, I think, I think more people than not believe it's a murder. Yeah. Um, and they've, you know, if you read the reviews on Amazon, one of them that I, I really wanted to mention, there was a woman who was working on a book on this case for five years 
and I heard about her and I heard about some of the questions she was asking. Um, and then she wrote a review and she's like, I'm so glad she wrote this book. And she said, you know, there were, there was, I worked on this for five years. There were certain reasons why I decided not to continue, but if Caitlin doesn't put it in the book, it's not because she doesn't know it. It's because legally it's not, <laughs> she's not able to tell you everything that she knows. And there is some truth to that. Um, but, you know, you can't just say anything. I mean, there's no criminal case. There is not enough forensic evidence to make a case against Adam Shackney. There's no DNA. There are no fingerprints of his anywhere in the room where the hanging rope was anchored to the bed. There isn't even any DNA on the knife that he told the police that he used to cut her down. So something's funky, right? Oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. That would be pretty hard to hide, wouldn't it? Well, if the because look, you're under duress. You your palms are sweating. You're there's bound to be some kind of a cut somewhere. You're holding a body up. You're sawing with the other hand. You're on a precarious uh, right. platform. So, so the DNA degrades in the sun, and they left her body and they left the knife out in the sun all day. Didn't That's cover other- her up. That's another thing I understand. Weren't there helicopters flying over in, uh, for quite some time and, and she wasn't removed for an inordinate amount of time? What, what sense it, does that It was make? about 12 hours before, <sighs> before the medical examiner got there. And they did not cover her with a tent or anything. And they could have without touching the body, you know. So, you know, there were issues with the way the investigation was conducted and the Zahaus, uh, rightfully so, have some issues with that. And they've sued the sheriff's department it's this is still pending so this is still an ongoing case they have sued the sheriff's department and sheriff gore to try to get more documents and more information about the investigation to and um i'm really interested to see what happens with that the next Ten year years later. Is in october yeah that's mind-boggling to me so it's ongoing yeah. it's still going Wow. I, I would like for this case to be reopened and for some of these questions to be answered. Unfortunately, though, you know, the time has passed for some of these questions to be answered. I mean, they should have gotten Adam's phone. They should have looked at his phone to at least back up his story. There's just this things that they didn't do and that they can't go back and, and do now. And so I don't know if they do reopen the criminal case. One of the people who's running uh, for sheriff, he ran against the sheriff in the last election, Dave Myers. He said he would reopen this as a criminal case if he was elected, and he only narrowly lost to Sheriff Gore. Sheriff Gore has announced he's going he's going to be retiring. He's not running again. And Dave Myers told me publicly on Twitter that if he is elected this time around, he is going to reopen this criminal case. I really would like to see some more work done and just to get to some of these questions answered. Well, let me see if I can figure out an author, a uh, Pulitzer Prize nominee author, who might be front and center, uh, maybe on the very front row, uh, reopening her own case. Hmm, who could that be? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still following it, so it's never closed. My case is never closed, if that's what yeah. you want to call it. But yeah, I'm still yeah. following it. I'm getting emails from people telling me things um, that I wish I'd known before, although some of it I don't think I could ever print because people don't want to get sued. But yeah, there's more information that's still coming to me as we speak. All right. In the interest of being respectful of your time, I want to uh, start winding things down a little bit. But I do want okay. to mention once again, Death on okay. Ocean Boulevard by Caitlin Rother. And it is inside the Coronado Mansion case, it's a it's a great read. Thank you uh, so much. Yes, I do want to say I love your I'm a big fan of great titles and cool character names. Now, this is coming from a fictional mind, but I love great character names. And when I'm uh, here's a little I'm going to run down a a list of your uh, other titles that you've written. Dead Reckoning, Hunting Charles Manson, Secrets, Lies and Shoelaces, which we just saw. Love Gone Wrong, Then No One Can Have Her. Naked Addiction, (laughs) I'll Take Care of You, Lost Girls, Poisoned Love, Body Parts, Twisted Triangle, Deadly Devotion, and My Life Defeated. Deleted. Deleted, sorry, deleted. Yeah, Yeah, that was 
I just, I love every one of those. And Thank you. I also noticed on the cover of this book, Greg Olson calls you the next Ann Rule. How does that make you feel? Pretty good. Yeah. Because when I, when I go to the bookstore, she, well, not, not so much anymore. Um, she's passed away, but in the older days, her, there would be an entire shelf of Ann Rule and there'd be like, you know, a couple of my books because <laughs> we're next to each other in the alphabet. Oh, so. yeah. It was really nice, though. Her son uh, reached out to me on Facebook recently and just introduced himself. I thought that was really nice. That's because so my nice. mom was Ann Rule. I'm like, oh, wow, well, that's so cool. She had, what, 35, I want to say? 30? A lot of books. Yeah. I don't know. She also wrote books where she would have just a collection of stories. And she actually wrote one about this case before she died. Um, and it was before the civil trial. So, But she clearly thought Adam did it. You could tell. <laughs> I've only had one other true crime uh, novelist on uh, or a writer on my show, and that was Susie Spencer, mm -hmm. who I think teed me up to you. Yeah. Susie has teed me up to so many people. She's a wonderful gal. She's great. Yeah. And she and I, I asked her, I said, Susie, having been around this, and, and I thought about this when I was reading your titles, when you've been around this much, let's just call it the dark side of humanity. You've been around it for so long, seen so much. You had, you were privy to so much audio and video in this particular case. I can't even fathom. And you've made a couple of references. And I thought as I was reading this, I'm like, I know that she has to be terrified and or suffering some kind of nightmare. So my question is, how has this affected you in this 19 year career, whether it was more toward the end or now, how has, has it affected you? And Let's, yeah, let's go there. Well, okay, if you ask that question to a homicide detective, he'd probably give you the same answer. And that is, you know, you have to disconnect yourself from the material or you couldn't do it. You know, you have, you have to get some distance from it or you couldn't do your job. So, I mean, I purposely though, don't choose cases that I can't stomach. So that's the first thing. You gotta make some intelligent choices. For the book that's called Body Parts, which was not my title, by the way, that was the publisher. I, I didn't like that title um, because it's so graphic. I mean, I, I try to be respectful and sensitive to the victim's families. Sure. And the reason that that title was, was called that is this was Wayne Adam Ford. He turned himself in with a woman's breast in a baggie in his pocket. And the good, the reason I picked that that story to write about was because he turned himself in, and I thought that was very unusual for a serial killer to realize he couldn't stop himself, and he turned himself in. He called up his brother. He said, "I need your help. I need your help turning me myself in, essentially." And so I thought that was a fascinating story. However, that was like nine months, the darkest part of my entire life that I don't ever want to repeat because. He had sexual paraphilias that I don't even want to describe. They're just so gross and disturbing. He, you know, cut up one of his victims in the bathtub. You know, he had sex with one of them after she was already dead. He, you know, I, it, I'm like, I don't want to write about this stuff. There are some people who choose stories like that and, and write about mass murders and serial killers. And I choose, that was the only one like that I'm going to do. So in terms of continuing with this career, I have to be careful the stories that I pick. And I generally don't have nightmares about it because I do not look at the pictures of the person. Of, I don't look at, at the decapitated or tortured or I don't look at those pictures. I went to the courthouse with a photographer, a friend of mine who was helping me out at the time there were uh, binders, I think, of all these photos. And I'm like, I can't look at those. I don't want to look at those. I don't need to look at those. So you have to be, I have to protect myself to a sure. certain point, but I still need to know what happened, but I have to just, and I don't want to, I don't want to write a book that I wouldn't want to read. But when I got to, um, here's this book I just happen to have sitting here too, Hunting Charles Manson. You can't not write about the, the violence in that book because you wouldn't be telling the truth. Right. So that was a pretty difficult book to work on because, you know, those victims were slashed and stabbed, you know, dozens of times, 57 times. And, you know, they were just just mutilated by these people. So that was a difficult that that was a difficult book to work on. But not all of them are. OK, let me cue the unicorns and rainbows, please <laughs> come this way. 
Girl Scout cookies for everyone. <laughs> I just want to add one thing, and that yeah. is the reason that I can continue to do this is because I don't write about the gruesome graphic details. I write about the psychology about why it happened. How did that person get to be that way? Why do they do what they do? And let's try to understand the human condition. How do we protect our, ourselves and our families from people like this? And I try to look at it from more of a, an educational standpoint. And I, like I said, I don't write books that I wouldn't want to read. So sure. anybody who tells me, I can't read your books because I don't want those images in my head. I always feel like, would you just try one? Because those images aren't in there. <laughs> This book, oh. while it does have photographs, they're not gruesome photographs. No, and absolutely. I, I love I the don't way. Do that. <laughs> yeah, I love the way that they uh, took these little mannequins or this this sketching, yeah. and they went through. This is how the child would have propelled, been propelled down the steps, and so forth. So, yeah, you're not going to have that here. So, as we wrap, I'd love to. I'd love this, uh, and it's on a positive note. If you could go back in time and tell your teenage self your best piece of advice, whether you were thinking about this career as early as that. What would that piece of advice? Okay. Um, my, my, I did not have a lot of self-confidence in myself at that time. I didn't know what I wanted to be or what I could do. Um, I would tell myself, you have no idea what you are capable of and what you will be able to do with your life because I wasn't hearing that at home. I wasn't getting that message. And so I wish I'd had that kind of encouragement. I had, I remember um, my best friend's mother's best friend told me something like that. And I didn't believe her, you know, I wish I had, cause I just thought, oh, she's just being nice. But yeah, I mean, you can do things that you never thought you could do, but you have to really, you have to be, you have to take risks and you have to grow. You can't be scared and not try things that you're not good at or try things that are hard. Everything I do is hard. I actually pick things that are hard. I don't know. I've always done that. And that's, you know, re rejection and rebounding from rejection and determination. And you got to just stick with things. But I didn't, you know, I, I learned that. And that's part of my nature. But that's, I would have told myself, you actually are going to do things you never even conceived. I didn't even know I was going to be able to, to do what I'm doing even, you know, 20 years ago. So yeah. That's awesome. And that's a great piece of encouragement to people who are perhaps on their fence, even later in life, wondering what and, you know, get away from the fear. Just yeah. try to look. I have plenty of fear. It's not like I don't have fear, but you have to get past it. You have to take some risks if you want to grow, if you want to do something that you really want to do. And you have to actually write those goals and those dreams down, write them down. It yeah. actually makes you work toward them. I always enjoyed this. I think it was an acronym, uh, if I'm using that properly, is uh, fear is simply the false evidence appearing real. And I've held on to that since I was Again? young. False evidence appearing real. Oh. Well, -E I, I, fear is sometimes very needed. It protects you from doing things that you can hurt yourself if you don't listen to the, to that. But there's sure. other things that you, you know, that are not real fears that you shouldn't you know, fear of success, fear of failure. Those, those are more of what I'm talking about. And here's another great thing that a lot of uh, my listeners may not know about you uh, is that you're a musician. And that's and a, part of what I'm talking about. I was going to say. Singing in public. Singing in public is no joke, me. young lady. And <laughs> with a group. Scary. Yeah. The, the group is called Breaking the Code, right? Um, that was the group that we were playing with before, but we're, uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to be it, doing a new group, I think. Um, what is it now? After Well, we, we're in COVID, so we're not even, I'm not even rehearsing right now. So I'm just going to keep that a lid on that one. All right. Well, we'll you'll have to let us know uh, where you'll be performing. I almost, there was a moment I wanted to put you on the spot and say perform something now, but it's a whole nother world. So I would I'm never not do warmed it up, so no. <laughs> All right. This, this is going to lead me to my last question as we roll. It, There's it, someone. There's some of me singing online if you really look for oh, it. Oh, I, I spent quite a bit of time on SoundCloud. I'll admit it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a stalker. So you've been, uh, <laughs> here's, here's the dream. You've been booked to perform. 
let's use this, uh, okay. with the artist of your dream, who would that be and where would you two perform? Oh my God. Yes. I have no idea. I'm, Take I'm your not time. Even, I'm not capable of, of having that because I don't, I don't have enough confidence in my, I'm still working on it. Let's pretend you have the confidence. Let's oh pretend my God. I it's don't you know. and me. You're just a, a, one of your favorite that's artists. That's such a hard question. You should have sent that one to me in advance. I can't no. come up with, I can't, that's not an over, over okay. the, Transom right. thing, yeah. But um, I love Bonnie Raitt, so. I stood next to her in a. Uh, I Walgreens. sing a lot of Bonnie Raitt, so. Love Bonnie. Not Raitt. as well as her, obviously. But. Oh, don't be too hard on yourself, ladies and gentlemen. The book is Death on Ocean Boulevard. Caitlin Rother. It has been delightful. I knew this was going to be delightful, and it. And oh, it thank was. you. It was delightful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being here, and I hope Welcome. you get to the bottom of this case. I'm trying. I'm, I'm really trying. But like I said, some people need to stop holding on to some secrets, mm -hmm. whoever those people may be. Mm. I don't even know necessarily. So I'm not saying yeah. I know who they are, but. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. Thanks to Caitlin Rother for the gift of her time on today's podcast. And trust me, folks, if you enjoy true crime, you'll enjoy Death on Ocean Boulevard. Now, please make plans to join me next Friday when my special guest will be the superstar writing duo of Andrews Wilson. Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson are the authors of Tier One, Sons of Valor, and their latest Dark Intercept arrives September 7th. Until next time, please share this show with your friends and tell them to join you in... The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.